Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome along a part two of the interview with Paul Larkin regarding the project and Robert Kelly's doorstep. Um, I'm sure you all heard part one and it's still available if needed there, so catch up after this episode. Hello, Paul. How are you? Very well, David. How are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. I'm good. So, in this uh, edition, we're going to talk about the three main guys that's mm. uh, featured in the book, mm-hmm. which is obviously Sir Robert Kelly, known to many, and Sir, uh, Sir George Grail, mm-hmm. no, no, no so much, really, yeah. which I wouldn't be surprised, but when you're going to give the insight yeah. to him, that will be quite a thing. And the other one is... Jamie McGrory, so over to you, Paul, if you want to... Um, Well, obviously, they're the three main protagonists, and I guess if we start in um, the orange corner. um, So George Graham um, is very much someone who, of his time, that, you know, probably, if he existed now, he would need to be a lot more secretive, a lot more kind of in the background and all that. Because although a lot of his kind of manipulation and sort of skullduggery was in the background then, he was very open about the fact that he was a high-ranking member of the Orange Order, a high-ranking Freemason. And as we know that, you know, one of the things, Davey, is, as you'll have seen yourself, that I used to get quite a lot of stick, believe it or not, for attacking the Freemasons. And, um, you know, which I think is just anything. It's, it's, it goes back to that thing about, you know, if you're handing £10 notes out in the street corner, somebody says, how's it no 20? You know? And um, it used to say that kind of like people would name people who were good Freemasons and all that sort of stuff. Yes, there is one. <laughs> and then you would say, well, they've clearly shown that they're no a bastard. You know, whatever. I'm talking about the, these Freemasons that are. And so... George Graham was one of these people who used that to progress his own life. Um, because previous to that, he was not somebody that was like, you know, born into the okay, kind of being the establishment or that. He very much greased the palms, quite literally, of the establishment. At the same time, he was a member of the Orange Order. And, you know, it's funny, like, when you're a writer... Uh, and if if I do in fiction, you write a novel and you can go right. I'll make it this because that'll be good, Ken, and I'll make it that because that'll be good. When you're doing non-fiction, you're just kind of hoping that things fall into place. So when you're looking at George Graham and you're saying, right, he's an orange man, and you think to yourself, why would that or how would that make it even better? What could be even better about the fact that I'm being an orange man? Well, the fact that his lodge was a lot called Purple Defenders, you know, and you just get one of the sort of things where you say, right, Lark Call Forever has been made the archetype place for those kind of people. And you think, well, what's the reason for that? Well, it's obviously because people like George Graham were in and around it. Um, But as a young man, um, there was obviously reports continuously that came out of his house about him coming home drunk and singing orange songs. And the neighbours complaining about that. And the mother having to go out at one o'clock in the morning and and fight for him, which was, uh, you know... It's Can you picture that nowadays? See, like you say, Paul, I mean, obviously, like you'd have to be more under the radar if we hadn't mm. been him and going about his business. Aye. But for the for the, the public disorder, menial things like that, I mean, that'd be fucking well, un- you've unbelievable. You've got to put it in the context, Davey, that if you were out every night coming back to the pub singing rebel songs, there's a good chance you would get lifted. 
right? Aye. And there's a good chance that the neighbours would complain and there's a good chance it would go to court. This is 100 years ago. And people, it might, it's his behaviour's that bad that it ends up going to court, you know, quite a few times. Okay. His mother had to actually go to defend him as well. <laughs> and you just get this impression, impression of this kind of Ma Brun type character with a rolling pin outside. You know, leave my, leave my laddie alone kind of thing, like, you know. Um, so he was well known. Um, he went to school in Glasgow and stuff like that. Um, and basically uh, took the route of kind of junior football as they all do and all that kind of thing because at that point, you know, these people are marked out for progress. Um, as I've said a million times, in the establishment, whether it's Scottish in general or the Edinburgh establishment or anything like a refereeing establishment, whatever, people seem to fail up the way, you know. In our jobs, we fail, we get sacked. In their jobs, it's like, there's no such thing as failure. Aye, it doesn't matter. Aye, it doesn't really matter what you do. So, through various machinations that we're going in the book, he ends up running the SFA. And this is in 1928. And um, it's a very pivotal time in Scottish football because the international scene's really developing. You know, Scotland didn't really play teams for outside uh, the UK, basically, and Ireland and things like that. So there was a start of the World Cup coming, you know, in 1930. And in Britain, you know, we were a bit sniffy about that, you know. We were like, what do we need to play these fucking mad foreigners for, you know. And there was very much, you know, you see, you know, you see like... Um, Every so often, some Tory will get fucking caught on camera or on tape saying, oh, these people in bongo, bongo land and all that nonsense. That was very much the thing, mate. And, uh, you know, FIFA and all that was kind of looking to expand that at a time when Britain very much had an empire mentality and say, no, 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 you didn't tell us what to do. We'll tell you what to do. And George Graham was very much of that mindset. And because of his position, he effectively picked the Scotland team, um, which, as we go into great detail, is the reason why Jimmy McGrory only got seven caps for Scotland. Um, and so he was like the man, you know, he was the power base in Scotland and you did not challenge him. But what you, what happened quite, quite a few times was that he basically thought of any and every way he could to shut down Celtic Football Club. As soon as he's got comfy in the chair in the SFA, he's like, how can I use this power? Right, who do I hate? Right, okay. So we go into the instances of when that happened. And we even go into an instance where he actually gave a press leak saying that Celtic were going to replace the Irish tricolour with a line rampant at Celtic Park. This is in the early 40s. Complete and utter rubbish, right? Apart from anything else, Davey, at that time, people were mere kind of thinking about the Second World War. They weren't really thinking about these things, and they weren't, it wasn't an official league, etc. Celtic, mostly which went to fight the Second World War, you know, as we know, um, leaving them really short and having to become a part-time club. Um, Rangers, as we know, uh, hid in the shipyards, <laughs> And yet, we'll put up lest we forget at Ibrox every fucking time they can. So, so I so Graham was one of these guys. I think 
anybody that's grew up in Scotland, Davies, particularly Central, West, East, maybe not so much the Highlands or the Borders, have this image of what your archetypal bigot is, right? And it's normally some wee fucking silly man in a suit, a white guy, who's an armsman and a Freemason and a Ranger supporter and all that sort of stuff. And that was George Graham. And because of that, you know, can you envisage, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, you know, Irish people are starting to talk about their identity. They're starting to talk about all these different things. And Celtic, you know, have maintained, bizarrely enough and ironically enough, a sort of sense of who we are and what we are probably until the 90s and when it became much more corporate. As a matter of fact, talking about flags and what's going on there now, when um, Celtic played Real Sociedad in 1982, Celtic flew the Basque flag above the jungle, not the Spanish flag. And Real Sociedad were like our brothers in Glasgow, you know, that's... Because nobody else done that. Yeah, that's the, the solidarity, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. That's what it's all about. And of course, that resonates to the present day and is the, the hub of the issue we're having just now. So, you had this guy in this immense power who um, was basically um, out to get Celtic at every opportunity. And we obviously go into that massively in the book. You have um, Jimmy McGrory as manager. So, McGrory, obviously, we know of his achievements as a football player, and he was unquestionably for a good five years, the best football player on the planet, um, apart, according to everybody, apart from George Graham, obviously. And he was... The, I mean, I said in the last podcast, David, that Navy's gave me only Celtic and Jimmy McGrory, and I'll, I'll stand by that to the, day, to the day I die. But what we need to, to we look into quite a lot is McGrory's character, right? McGrory's seen himself as a servant of Celtic, right? That's why he was not the highest paid player at the football club. Now, we all know that that's been a kind of another constant in Celtic is no uh, rewarding players when they shoot and all that kind of thing. But even when McGrory found that out, when he's scoring goals every single week, he never complained about it. He saw it, uh, he saw it as a privilege to play for Celtic Football Club. And we all know that Celtic have played on that forever with players. You know, the, 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 this, this is why Celtic, to me, is the greatest football club in the world. Not because of fucking border penny punchers. It's because... There is that thing with the fans and the players and the club that has this just absolutely devotion to it, you know? And I think we've seen guys in the past who were able to excel themselves because they were playing for Celtic and they loved the club so much. You know, people like Frank McGarvey and all that, they were just, even they go around and say Frank McGarvey one of the best, but he scored goals all the time. And there was this kind of um, relationship with the fans. So that when he, you know, Frank McGarvey told a story to me once where he said, he went, he signed for Liverpool for some money and he went into Bob Paisley and said, I want to leave Liverpool. And he said, what? He said, you know something, nobody's ever said that to me. You know, they were European champions. Or, and he said, I want to play for Celtic. And he went in half the wages that he was on at Liverpool for Celtic, you know. So, and McGrory was exactly the same. He just saw himself as a servant. So after he stopped playing, and he became the Kilmarnock manager, and he played there, uh, he was a Kilmarnock manager for about seven years, which I think a lot of people didn't realise. In fact, one of his first games, I think it was actually his first game, they lost 9-1 to Celtic. And uh, I think Kilmarnock fans are like, oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> what have we got here? But, you know, they speak very highly of him there. 
but by the end of the Second World War and the kind of chance to re-establish the club and kind of um, get reorganised it, if you like. Um, Tom White, who was the chairman, um, son was Desmond White, who became the chairman. His son, Chris White, was on the board. And so that's how you end up with these series of idiots called White on, at Celtic because they had one as chairman. He went down to McGrory uh, at Kilmarnock and said, would you come as Celtic manager? And he really he didn't know if McGrory was going to come because McGrory at this point is now staying in Ayrshire and he's very settled, he's very happy and he's got a really secure job and all that kind of thing. And he go doing his, kind of made his pitch and all that and McGrory was like, yeah, absolutely, I'll come. And McGrory said after that, he said, if he'd come down to me and said, do you want to sweep the terraces, I would have come. You know, that, that was the level of devotion. When he came as manager... The the club was in turmoil, as we previously mentioned. You know, the guys had uh, a lot of guys had went to the Second World War and lost their life and all that kind of stuff, and or weren't able to play and all that. And Celtic needed money, so unfortunately, um, which has become a thing, you know, they were selling star players like Jimmy Delaney to Manchester United, and McGrory was kind of saying, you know, you know, all right, I know we need money, but we can't be too fucking eager to sell our players because we're going to end up in a bad way. And that, of course, led to us having to fight for our um, safety and survival in the last game of the season in 1948. But moving on for that and moving away a bit for his part in the flag flutter because McGrory was very much, he was a practising Catholic, he adored Ireland, he understood, he kind of lived an Irish life he kind of, you know, the, the Irish ways and Irish laws, as he used to call it. And what I mean by that is, right, it's things I know that traditions, and you'll know the traditions that people in Scotland have, things like Hugmanay and all that kind of thing, Ken. Well, in, I, in Ireland, it was things like, uh, you had steak pie for your dinner on New Year's Day and things like that. You know, it's like we would have and the coal and all that sort of stuff, right? That's the way McGrory lived his life. So he absolutely knew how important Ireland and Celtic was. And that is why, as you'll read in the book, within the Great Flag Flutter, he was absolutely determined to fight for Celtic because he knew nobody else would. That's the first thing, as, we, as we've, both me, you and many other people have said to everybody a, a million times, if we didn't do it, yep. nobody yep. else will. And he understood the importance of Celtic to the community. You know, we can sometimes, I've sometimes felt in my life, Davey, I don't know if you've ever felt the same, where the only place in Scotland I've felt at home is Celtic Park, right? And I didn't necessarily mean that means I'm getting abused every day or this or that or that. I just mean that I'm among my own people here and this is great and it's it's not about you're a Catholic, you're a Protestant, you're this, that, it's about, or you're a Celtic man and I'm a Celtic man and so on and so on. And But back in the 50s, I mean, that was even more important. Because, you know, people had hard lives, you know. And um, there wasn't a lot of social outlet for people then, you know. Um, you're just really at the start of the kind of rock and roll period in music. Films are still dominating, but television's just starting to come along and challenge this. And at the time, believe it or not, there was a big kind of thing that fucking cinema was basically saying, if we allow governments to put televisions in our house then cinema will be dead by the 1960s, you know, because um, they were that scared there. So 
it was so important for to reach Celtic survival. But be even beyond that, you know, McGrory is the manager where Celtic won the Coronation Cup. Now, the reason Celtic were in that tour- tournament was was one reason only: the support. It wasn't mm-hmm. the team's ability. You know, they were neither, that they were nowhere near as good as like your Arsenal and your Man United or even Hibs and the famous five and all that kind of stuff. But they were like, they'll get a crowd. And we'll tell the story how the Coronation Cup came about, which might shock a few people um, within the book. Um, so McGrory won that. And you can just, just, just picture yourself in that era where you've just had this fight for your club's survival and then you've went the following year and become the best team in Britain by beating Britain's best for a trophy that's to celebrate the Queen. You know, it doesn't really get much get it fucking up you than that, basically, like, you know? And that sends a fucking laser beam through the club and we go on to win our first league championship in 16 years, the year after, inspired by us. In fact, we won the double. And there are loads of reports of Celtic supporters saying that's the best they've ever seen in terms of the, the team of the late 30s before World War was absolutely brilliant. It, of course, had won the Empire Exhibition Cup, beating Everton in the final at Ibrox, won the Tate's Tower. Of course, Tate's Tower then gets demolished. It was at Park gets demolished because they think it'll be a target for the Luftwaffe in the Second World War. And... Uh, People, as much as the Second World War is obviously horrendous and that, were like, fucking hell, we'll never ever know the potential of that team because it had to be a cup and go to war. And for the war years after that, a lot of people thought, are we ever going to have a team again? You know, it's been so bad and we're almost getting relegated and that kind of thing. So when we won the double, people, it was like grown men crying, literally, you know, dancing in the streets type thing. And then, of course, McGrory is the manager when we won the League Cup in 1957 against... I can't remember who we beat, but we were 7-1. Was that just a tight game, wasn't it? Aye, it was. Obviously, back then, televisual things are pretty much non-existent, particularly by the BBC, who left the lens cap on. Showing the highlights. So we've only seen kind of minuscule footage and all that kind of stuff. People who weren't yet the game... Asking folk they seen in the street what was the score seven one nobody believed them. Okay, and they were just like what? Aye, right. Fucking hell, we didn't get beat seven one, did we? No, we won seven one. What? You just couldn't believe it. Like so, that was that. And then of course, the team gets broken up, and this is a kind of decision by Michael, uh, by McGrody and Kelly, which didn't go doing well with the fans at all. Because as far as the fans were concerned, they players should be put up on the wall at Celtic Park for the rest of their life. If we didn't even win another game, what the fuck are you getting rid of them for? But the vision was football's changing, you know? We need to go to your youth players. We need to have a youth policy that's going to think me. And so McGrory's at the heart of all that, and it's him who has signed Jokestein as a player who recommends Jokestein as reserve team manager. Now just think about how crucial, crucial a moment that is in Celtic's history. Steen, of course, goes to Dunfermline. And I think if you were to ask uh, Robert Kelly then why that happened, uh, he would say, well, we put him out for get experience. I think if you asked Joke Steen, he would say a certain director who uh, wasn't Bob Kelly said, you'll never be manager here because you're a Protestant. And Steen was like, oh, fuck you then. Be Joke Steen being Joke Steen. So, 
McGrory is the one that has to rear these players. And, of course, like any youth policy, it's not all instant success. You know, it's having to break players in and, you know, and, and so by about 1963, the fans are furious because they're like, this has been rubbish for years now. What the fuck would you break that team up for, etc., etc.? They're getting it tight to Robert Kelly and primarily because Jimmy McGrory is Jimmy McGrory. And uh, but McGrory say to them, listen, it's coming soon, I can promise you. And of course, the seeds are sown the following season in 64, we get to the European Cupners Cup semi final. And um, we should have been to the final because obviously we uh, won 3 0 in the first game and lost 4 0 away. And even in the season 64 65, just before Steen comes, there are signs with. We've annihilated Aberdeen at home and all that, and people are like, "Fucking hell, it's the best Celtic team I've seen for years." This is before Steens takes over them and makes the great leap. So McGrory absolutely lays the platform for what success comes in sixties and seventies. And Robert Kelly is, as I said before, he's a kind of lace cut and Irish Scottish guy. He's went to um, the first free paying Catholic school in Scotland, which was there to basically create a Catholic middle class. He trains as a stockbroker. And uh, he's elected onto the board of the Celtic in 1932 when his father, James Kelly, um, dies. He becomes chairman after Tom White dies in 1947. And he really gets a grip of the club. But he is not a dictator. He is not George Graham. He does not insist on who's playing. He recommends players to Jimmy McGrory. Um, one of whom uh, is Bobby Collins, the great player who played for Celtic and Everton and Leeds United. And George Graham did everything in his power to try and stop him playing for Celtic. And we tell that story in the book. It's very much George Cadet of its time. And when you when you when it's unfolding and you're reading it, you're kind of like, this is unbelievable. This is like fifty years before George Cadet. And it's George Cadet. This is incredible. So we tell that story. And Kelly, um, obviously, is one of the main players in the great flag for And without his political experience, his political manoeuvring, I don't think Celtic would exist today. I really don't. Um, Because it's easy in these situations, and I'm sure many people listening, myself included, would do the same, that if this kind of threat was to come along in the day, we'd be like, right, fuck it, let's do these bastards, right? That's not going to win you the day. What you need to do is you need to outwit them. Yep. You need to be one step ahead of them because they're coming for you. And that's exactly what Kelly did to save the club along with McGrory's support. As we say, we get to the late 50s, he breaks up the team, we have the Kelly kids, um, kind of youth policy. And he is... Still great friends with Jokestein. And he's made aware of the fact that um, Jokestein has been told this about the religion thing. And he's like, no, that's no, no in my watch. No chance, you know. So, but Kelly is a strong-willed person. He got ready players for things that <laughs> probably some diehard Celtic supporters would get ready players for. But when you look at it now, he got rid of Pat Creran because he'd been seen, seen out with Jim Baxter. We're not having pals with him. He got rid of Bertie Old because he heard he had joined the Masons. 
was like, that one having that either. And it was just like, okay. Um, it was massive. And he, but Kelly saw himself as a protector of Celtic Football Club. That here was this great institution that his father would have been the first captain of. And it was his job to ensure that that institution kept going on and obviously was successful. And so the achievements that he did at Celtic are absolutely incredible. Um, saw him, as I say, when I say saw himself as a defender of the club, I think to myself, when was the last time we could say that about anybody that was running it? Yeah, me 100% right with that, Paul. I know, because, I mean, I've seen plenty of chief executives and so-called owners that are uh, protectors of themselves and their career and their family and all that. But when it's about Celtic, 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 and bear in mind as well, another thing that drives me insane, it was Robert Kelly who said that Celtic was more than a football club in 1967. It was a way of life for people. So why on earth we allowed Barcelona to just adapt that and come up with this club like no other shite? It's yep. just fucking beyond me. But then, I suppose then you could say, why on earth is Robert Kelly no recognised at Celtic Park anyway? Nice. You know? It's... Um, one of the criticisms of the, the current leadership, among many, is that they, they put this thing where it feels like we were formed and then we won the European Cup in 1967 and now we're playing and nothing else happened. And you've got this rich tapestry history with these guys that should absolutely be recognised because Celtic have been continually and consistently attacked throughout its history. You need people to defend it. Because let me tell you something right now, if you didn't give a fuck, we're gone. Well, you're 100% right with that, Paul, because, I mean, you're talking about people at the top that's going to come out and for other fucking folks and everything else, to have the support of the board is something that's, that's lacked among the Celtic supporters mm -hmm. and there's nobody speaking the voice for them and, I mean, <laughs> we might might not have liked McCann, like Mc, uh, Robert Kelly or anybody mm -hmm. else that you could call it, but they, they fought for our club and nobody's doing that they knew, apart from the fans and even that, that seems to be dwindling and losing a lot of a fight amongst us. But, but going back to the, the project, Paul, I mean, you're, you're talking about Jimmy McCrory, I mean, being one of us and everything else, mm -hmm. mind, body and soul for that, man. You, yeah. you just look at the amount of times that he took a, a broken nose or a, a broke his jaw in the park, going for the ball and everything else and becoming a, a PR officer as opposed to going out and earning big money as manager and his later days for us and, and, and no going to Arsenal when he could earn that big money. It's things that me and you and a hell of a lot like is that we are friends with and contribute to yeah. a lot of things that you do, but... Robert Kelly, he's he's different for me with the way that I would look at it because for exactly like you would say, uh, for, the, for the educated man side mm. of it, it's got the noose to fight these people where it's not just a case of taking their word for it. If they're, if they're going to say something wrong, if they're going to be, in this case, with a great flag flutter when you're coming into the laws of it, when it's getting to the, to the fucking the court side of it where yeah. it's you're up there and it's your very existence that's at stake yeah. he's not going to go into that room knowing no. that he's not going to win that fight and as you'll see in the book the SFA are very much aware of that and his skills and therefore try to pull the, the rug from under him quite a few times Kelly you know the message of the man to me is things like when he knew Celtic needed a new manager and got Joe Steen he didn't go see like see you later Jimmy McGrory because he obviously knew Jimmy McGrory's um, impact on Celtic Football Club. 
and he gave him a job. Now, what's really interesting is, and fucking heartbreaking as far as I'm concerned, was that Jimmy McGrory opened the stand at Celtic Park when it was rebuilt, the main stand in 1971 um, against Penarol. And Kelly basically died that year as well. And Desmond White took over as chairman. For that day, until McGrory died on the 20th of October 1982, I'm sorry to say, but Celtic never done a fucking thing for him. That's disgusting. Um, they gave him... For all his service, bear in mind player, manager, PR officer, a pair of cufflinks and a watch. Um, he had to, he had stayed in, believe it or not, Ibrox, uh, Govan, just hang me, and he had to downsize his house um, in the latter years of his life. That would never have happened if Robert Kelly was still alive. No, you know? 60 years um, of it. If you want to look at one of the real villains of Celtic Football Club, it's Desmond White, because it was Desmond White who just saw Celtic as a cash cow. And that's why the success of the 60s and 70s was not built on, and the club ended up almost going to the war in the early 90s because of people like him, basically. But uh, aye, Robert Kelly, he was very much aware that the SFA were always going to be against Celtic. He spoke on many occasions in the club programme and things like that, about how we are treated differently by the authorities. So he never shied away from it. And he never had felt like the present incumbents do. And um, that reassured the supporters because we've always had this thing, I think, with Celtic supporters, and it gets called paranoia and that, but we're always kind of suspect of the enemy within. You know, how, how um, passionate and committed are these people that are at the top of the club to the club? You know, um, you know it's kind of this sort of mantra goes around about uh, the Tory board, and you sort of say to yourself, "Well, who are, who is that?" I mean, obviously the archetypal one is Peter Lawwell, um, who see, seems to be dancing away from blame and criticism because he's now chairman and no chief executive. I mean, uh, really, you know, um, the same board, both PLC and non-executive directors and all that, have been there for years. And have far too much influence on things for for what? You know, guys getting 50 grand and 70 grand a year and that. For what? You know? We have a PR department, talk about McGrory. Now imagine you are dealing with Celtic and the guy you meet is Jimmy McGrory. Fuck me. Ken, it's like dealing with Santos and getting Kelly <laughs> is going to be there, right? The power PR department now exists to make sure the directors get to and from all the games in most comfort and most safety possible. You know, it's a farce. So, for any criticisms that Robert Kelly would have got at the time, and, and, and most of that would come for the fact the team wasn't winning or anything like that, there is absolutely no doubt that Robert Kelly um, was absolutely devoted to Celtic, gave his life to Celtic. Um, and even Lady Kelly, who obviously became his, he was named Lady Kelly after Robert Kelly was knighted, was exactly the same. She went to every game and, you know, committed and all that kind of thing. And Robert Kelly, if you consider um, when he started first going to Celtic games, right up until he died in 1971, probably had seen Celtic live more than anybody that's ever existed on this planet. That's unbelievable. You know what I mean? Um, and so, you, you, you ask yourself, like McGrory, why is there no recognition of it at Celtic? Now, if you want my thing, 
my opinion, it is it's like the Tories in government. They defund education because they, they rely on a certain level of stupidity to get away with what they get away with. If these people were put up at Celtic in statues and pictures and so on, it might educate younger people to realise what absolute fucking cunts we have running the club right now compared to what we used to have. It might educate people what is what is possible with Celtic. Um, you know, situations. I mean, we I've I seen a scenario develop last year where you know decisions are gone left, right, and centre against us, and Michael Nicholson was asked, "So what are you doing about?" And the first thing he said was, "He says, oh Christ, I knew I'd get this question. Not a good start." Uh-huh. And he says, "Well, we've pushed for VAR." And I said to him, "It's a matter of VARs and or no. It's the same people controlling it, and it's going to be a fucking shit show." Oh well, we'll wait and see. Well, that's over a year on, and he's never phoned me up to apologise. You know, right. that you know, Celtic board now. You want to look at them; they're very, very reactionary. It's you know, we see something we didn't like, we react to it. If it affects our supporters, like the farce at Easter Road last week, not interested. You know, um, and Kelly just wasn't like that. He was all about the Celtic support. And if, if you were out of order at a game or whatever, he'd be the first one to castigate you so we didn't want that at Celtic Park or anywhere else for that matter. But he would defend the club. He would defend the players. He would defend the identity, the culture. He wouldn't change it for anybody. And, you know, remember it was him who said that we'll play Gaelic football here before we'll take that flag down. Yep. I think if the same happened today, the fucking Peter Lowell would deliver it to Hamden Park himself. <laughs> you know? So this book is a lot about recognising these people and giving them the tribute and accolade they deserve for their defence of Celtic Football Club, Um, which I think as we get further away from it, and it's the same with Lisbon and all that, um, you realise this is when giants walk the earth. You know, we've seen the Beatles thing come this week, the last ever Beatles song, and it's like, fucking hell, I... They were absolutely untouchable. We're all in that era and we've got all these people that have done all these things for Celtic, but of course they shame the current incumbents and therefore it's due to support us to tell these stories because they'll never tell these stories. You know, I said in the last podcast for a long time that I just couldn't find any stories that interested me enough. And because the club will put out their own narrative and other people will write books that are mere, you know, autobiographies or here was this great game and that, that's absolutely fine and I, I read them all myself and all that and fine. But that's not what I do. And so when this come along, it was like, aye, I have to do this because who else has got to tell the story? Certainly know the club. And nobody should be under any illusion that the club, not just with this book, have never done anything to help me, ever. They've done plenty of stuff to hinder me. You know, the the the, the guy, uh, Kevin Colley, who was running the Celtic shop, told me that the Astrosiers had no market for bookwise. Well, it sold 80,000 copies, so, you know, your loss. Um, and from that moment onwards, it was like there was no relationship whatsoever. Lawwell, seen all the films. Great, aye, fantastic. And I, what did they do about it? Nothing. You know what I mean? And that's when I started to realise that you, you're as much a part of this on a different scale. 
you know, and the information I was telling him about, you know, the Huns and Safeco and Craig White and Law and um, Dave King and all that mob and you know dynamite stuff. It wasn't out in the public domain. This is what they're trying to do and all that kind of thing. I mean, I was a, I was a guy I told that told them the only reason Dave King's involved with the Nuco is he's trying to get the twenty million back for David Murray that he gave him in the early two thousands because he's skint. And, the, and as soon as he realises he can't get that because Murray's not got that money, he'll fuck off. And that's exactly what happened. I told that information to law about three years before it happened. But what you realise is, I had an, inf- uh, an instance with a journalist as well, um, where Ali McCoist was talking about how the players, Lee McCulloch's wages had got out in the first season of the Nuco. And he was talking about players can't expect the same level of wages because of this division and so on and so forth. And I furnished a journalist to go down a different angle to with Alan McCoy's pay packet and his salary, which at that time was the highest in Scotland. £890,000 a year. And he's telling the players that they shouldn't expect big wages. And I gave it to that journalist and you know what he did? He buried it. Not he actually did it. And if anybody wants to know who it was, it was Stephen McGowan at the Daily Mail. So, because I've thought to myself, right, okay, if if I can't, you know, if I'm now identified as this, you know, uh, uppity Fenian type guy, and they're never going to listen, maybe if it's in the press, they'll realise and it'll undermine him kind of thing. Um, but he buried it, and that's when you realise that you know they're, they're not worth a fuck, and that's why it's important for us to tell our own stories, and particularly working class supporters, because nobody will tell these stories for you. And um, we are, you know, in a situation now where, you know, like in the eighties, Thatcher and what she done to working classes. One of the sort of two aspects of goodness that came out of that was great music people who had nothing to do and decided right and great TV shows like Boys for the Black Stuff and Avery's and Pet who showed the working classes fighting back and uh, now we have a musical industry that's fully middle class people only the working class people in it are probably in grime and we have um, a TV that you, you know it's virtually impossible for working class people to get their stories out on anything thankfully we have Jimmy McGovern still there who who's telling great stories through this show time and all that but I would say to anybody, you know, see with this kind of stuff, if you've got a story to tell, tell it. Don't wait on anybody. Don't think, well, what if this happens and what if that happens and that? Just go out there and tell it because it's really, really important that we shape our own history. You know, when when I was growing up and doing history at school, the British Empire was like this fucking great force. Yeah, you know, they did it. and then we fucking find out they were ruled the world at the end of a gun for three hundred years, massacred millions, stole trillions. It's important that we shape it and we change these narratives, and that's why I think stuff like this is important. Now, it didn't get me wrong; it's very, very exhausting because, as well as writing the book, you have to promote it yourself. And for a while, people would say, "Oh, you're the brand," and all that sort of shit. And I was never really comfortable with that because what happens is. Uh, I might have mentioned before, is you could be online and you have a take a different viewpoint to somebody and they say, well, I'm not going to buy his fucking book. Yeah. You know? And you're like, oh, really? So I've kind of shied away from social media now in the sense of just making the work hopefully stand for itself, just like McGrory and Kelly did 
with Celtic. Well, I don't think there's going to be any danger of that going with your previous books and projects, Paul. It grabs all our attention and everybody will be familiar with it. And this, the subject matters are really, really, really important, obviously, because no matter your creed or your cover or whatever, and whether you agree with things or whatever, mm-hmm. they, they, these are the facts. These are mm-hmm. the facts that's going to be laid out in front of us about people. I mean, you're talking about Jimmy McGrory, and I mean, people will know. Most people know the stats, but mm. nobody's going to know the man. Nobody's going to know the man, and that's what I'm looking forward to. And and nobody loves a, a good villain more than a book also. And I think I was going to ask you about Sir George Graham, um, but you answered the question before I even asked it. Mm. When basically, is he a fucking nugget, a gold find for I a, mean, like, a villain? Aye, I mean, this book is not about Jimmy McGlory's playing exploits. There are great books like Heroes Are Forever with John. Kearney and even Jerry McNeese's book A Lifetime in Paradise is brilliant um, this is about basically the man as you say and what how he became that man in a kind of slumdog millionaire type way um, and, and Sir George Graham I it's probably quite shocking to me that he actually isn't well, well known do you know what I mean but then I suppose it would be so much easier to bury stuff back then when there isn't 24 hours a day media and there isn't all these channels of social media and everybody's got cameras and recording equipment and all that sort of stuff. Back then, you could be sitting in a room, you know, people can, People always say to me, right, how the fuck can all these people keep this conspiracy going, right? So there's two things about that. The first thing is I went to a few academics, right, people with no skin in the game and said, this is what I believe goes on in Scotland. What do you think? And every one of them came back with different versions. Say, I think, I think you're right. You know, some say it's a kind of coded thing, but it's there. The second thing is, people always say, "Well, how can all these people keep a conspiracy going without it getting out?" And I said, "Well, look at the Manhattan Project. That was involving about hundred thousand people, and they bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki without anybody knowing until they were on their way." You know, an Oppenheimer film exposed that kind of thing. Um, it can happen. All you've got today, it's a bit like the refereeing thing. I used to always say about refereeing, you know, you recruit the right people. This is what it's all about. This is why they all come from different backgrounds that are like lawyers and doctors and all that, but they're all basically from another background that's exactly the same. You didn't need to tell them to cheat Celtic. In the same way that if we go to a fucking Aberdeen game, Nick, eh, or the Celtic Aberdeen, Celtic whoever, and I didn't need to say, David, see when we score, jump up and cheer. It's an instinctive thing. And you will get many people, many, many people, who can't differentiate between Celtic and Sevco and think that somehow there is this kind of being who exists who supports both of them. I've never met anybody like that, but... I get plenty of that. Also, uh, my sister's comments, sorry. And then you also get people who are like, but what about all the trophies you've won and all that kind of thing? And I'm like, well, it doesn't really matter. It's about the ones we didn't win. Right. Why should we, you know, and the last one, which happens every single time we got a decision against us and didn't win a football match, is you'll highlight the decision and people will say, but we go beat anyway and we're shite. Well, what fucking difference does that make? 
the point is, why should we have to put up with it? I am not asking for a, you know, preferential treatment or a sporting advantage or a fucking unsporting advantage. I'm just asking for a level playing field because I believe if we get a level playing field and we have had a level playing field at times mere recently because we're able to expose things, we'll win everything. And that's exactly what happened. You know, after um, the ridiculous decision in the Inverness Cali semi-final, which basically cost Ronnie Dyler a treble, mere scrutiny right. of their own name, Lanarkshire um, referees association, etc., 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 and it made it much harder for them to control these things. And a Celtic team just went in one fucking quadruple treble. You know, that's it. So, you know, we've seen various instances. We've seen instances in England with Tottenham and Liverpool where a VAR makes their own call and English football almost shuts down. The fucking media almost exploded. Yet, recently at Ross County, we saw clearly the fucking wrong angle taken for VAR for the O-go and they can't bats an eyelid. Exactly. So I wanted the draw. I want it for Park for as well. Why you the wrong like, lines drawn? You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, you've seen... The fucking referee pulls a goal off the Liam Scales score and you're saying, what's happened here? And then you say, oh, well, it's for a challenge you owe. And then you see it back and you're like, he's not done anything wrong. Aye. The fucking VR looks at it for five minutes and decides, oh, yeah, he has. You're like, give me a fucking break. And then, of course... We needed five minutes VR for a boy who almost snapped Yang's leg. Aye. I mean, Aye. the first time you see that in real time, on that angle, you're like... See, when you see the, and you see his position, he's fucking a couple of yards away from that. Aye. They're showing you the camera angle and the first time you see is his back. He's looking at it there and then. So, I mean, that's the even... That, that incident Aye. alone, Paul, is one that they've had to give because you can't get away well, from that's the thing. that. The Huns... You know, John beaten last week. There was never any danger. He was neg- he was going to allow them to lose that game. They got a ridiculous penalty at the end. It defies all the gravity. It's just like, what the fuck is this? Uh, four days later against Simon, Kyogo gets clotheslined in the box. He doesn't even look at it. Yeah. No, even looked yep. at it. So, these are all the reasons why you fight. You get called all the shite of the day, paranoid this, weirdos, this, fucking that, 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 that. And I always think... I've said this before you get when you get a lot of stuff and it's like ha 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 look at you fucking nutcase ha 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 when it becomes abusive like I we're getting to the bastards spoke right. a few truths there have we touched a few nerves there have we and so as much as I'm all about trying to expose our enemies I also want to celebrate the people that you know are the reason why we're here today and two of the people are Robert Kelly and Jimmy McGrory and that's exactly why you should buy the book Yes, and that is available and the best way for you to do that is if you invest because in the investment packages there's a book that comes with it and the higher you go mm. as well. That's yeah, that's the, book. Aye, the book will be out on the 25th of May, um, so cup final day, so hopefully you'll not have time to read it that day. But <laughs> One for the hangover the next day. Um, but yeah, uh, that's what I'm doing now. I'm kind of hoping to have a first draft by Christmas Eyes open for a couple of weeks. Um, and then back on it in January to polish it off and all that kind of thing. And as I say, three orders in March and out on May 25th. And then we all look forward to reading that for our summer holidays and hangovers after the cup final, Paul. Well, we know plenty of people that like plenty of holidays, so. Um, oh, well, I'm fucking sure cooking out the, the PA4 postcode way you'll get a fucking few for the Raj with that. Yeah. 
All right. So, well, I'm looking forward to it. We'll be catching up with you, no doubt, in the coming months. We another week. Right, well, another, we've got another uh, chat in December and talk about the film. Right, we'll look forward so. to it then. No problem. Okay, David. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Cheers later. later. Just a quick uh, update on that, just before we play you out with some music. Um, the book is actually now going to be out the same day as the film, which is November the 1st. Um, various reasons, primarily the biggest one being it needs a lot more research and writing than previously thought, or even at the time of that recording. So, November the 1st, 2024, book and film. Now here's a song. Hunting by the rivers through the streets every corner 